Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We are in the second half of Ephesians 2. Last week, 11 through 22 was our focus. Now today, we come to verse 19 and down to verse 22, and we focus a little more closely at the content of these verses about the church. It is no secret to you how the world in general does not appreciate the importance of Christians or the church. It's very evident, even in our own country, which was founded upon the principle of freedom to worship, that the church is not highly valued any longer. The state of Nevada put a restriction on churches meeting for worship. Interestingly, that restriction put on those churches is far more stringent than the restriction they put on the casinos. When the Supreme Court of the United States reviewed the case, the court upheld the state's ruling that restricted the church's meeting. Clearly, the church isn't appreciated as we might have once witnessed. In China, the government there has recently torn down church buildings. Similar efforts to erase the church are happening as we gather here. These things are happening in other places around the world, in Asia, as well as in Africa. Observing the way that Christ's church has been treated over the years rightly convinces us of what Paul speaks of here, the fact that there will be opposition to us. But Paul also paints a picture of growth that God is doing, building that God is doing. Even despite pressure against the church, God continues to grow his church the world over. Against the backdrop of one of the most impressive pagan temples in the ancient world, Paul was writing to lift the people of God, a very small church. He was writing to lift them up so they would understand their, ide- their identity and what God was doing in and through them. While they certainly felt like strangers and aliens, uh, they were now part of God's church, of God's kingdom, God's family, God's holy temple. This is a word we need in every era. So please hear as I read Ephesians 2, starting at verse 19 to verse 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, over the years, your people have been maligned and cast down by the world around them. In Paul's day, the Christians were struggling to make you known, yet you gave them strength by giving them a heavenly vision of who they were in reality. They weren't strangers and aliens any longer. They were your people, the called out ones, the church of Jesus Christ. And you are building them up into a holy temple then and now placed on this earth to point people to your glory and to your Christ. Encourage your people this hour with the truth of your word and the reality about what you are building on this earth. 
and in this place. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It can certainly be easy for Christians to become discouraged, especially about the lack of growth and influence the church may have in a given time. That's natural. I would submit every Christian who has ever lived, wherever they live, has gone through feelings like this or observations like this, realities like this at the moment, for sure. The Belgic Confession was written in the 16th century, and notice how timeless what it says is. Even though for a time it may appear very small, the church, to human eyes, as though it were snuffed out. So it's apparent that uh, in the 16th century they could observe that there are times when the church feels like it might be snuffed out. Paul writes to the Ephesian church, a very new church, a very small church, uh, a very, uh, I would say weak church spiritually, but as far as what influence they could actually have, it, it wasn't much. And here is Paul writing to the Ephesians. What would he say to them to give them strength, to give them security, to give them stability, uh, encouragement about what God is doing in and through them? The original recipients of this letter to the Ephesians had to wonder about their longevity. They had to wonder about their future. What was their witness in the world supposed to be? Many years ago, I had the occasion to live in Chicago for several years downtown and got to watch buildings go up all the time, go up and go down as well. Now, Chicago, by most American city standards, has a newer cityscape because of the fire in the 19th century. Many of the buildings have been, written, uh, have been built rel- relatively recently. Some, though, uh, the older buildings, uh, because it would be easier for them to just tear them down and build new ones, they'll do this in the middle of a city block. Other times, they'll take an old building and they'll shore it up. They'll strengthen it up and remodel it and then build on top of it. There's just not a lot of room to go outward, so they go upward. And I remember one such building, it seemed like it took forever to build. It was an old building, and they shrouded it in scaffolding and curtaining, it seemed like. And then they were doing something to strengthen it. It took over a year in the, underneath this shroud that they were building, where it didn't get any taller, just what, is what it was. Kind of ugly to look at, but you could tell it was something significant, but you couldn't really tell its identity. And then over time, they would raise up the scaffolding higher and the curtaining higher, and it would go higher. They built more and more stories on it. Eventually, after over two years of it being shrouded like this, the scaffolding came away and the curtaining came away, and this really bright stone building emerged. It was washed clean, and it was sharp, and it had lights on it in just a certain way, and you could see it for blocks and blocks away. And it looked crisp and clean, and it just, your eyes went to it when you saw it. What a difference in the whole building and refurbishing process, and then when it was finally revealed what it was. It was an amazing sight, for sure. I think this compares to the work that God is doing in building His church. Um, We may appear shrouded to the world a little bit. Um, There's some curtaining on us, some scaffolding, but God's building us. He's building us. He's building you. Uh, And over time, and in time, at some point, the great revealing will happen on the great eternal revealing for sure. And we'll get to see the glorious thing God has been building and is building right now. And that is important for us to realize when we may feel especially like the church isn't doing much or isn't being built, or at least under our own nose, it seems like it's weak and struggling. This has always been a challenge for the people of God and the inhabitants of Ephesus and the members of the church there certainly felt that. 
And Paul gives this clear heavenly vision of what the church is and what God is doing in the church and through the church. As God's view of Christ's church is understood by us, the people of God, our security, our unity, and our witness become greater, no matter what the outward circumstances say. And here in the passage, verses 19 through 22, Paul uses three metaphors that kind of overlap each other, three metaphors for the church that intensify one after another. They give a little more of a nuance, a little more of an angle on what the church is and what Christ is doing in his church. Paul gives three illustrations of who the church is that successively amplify. First, we see in the passage that the church is described in terms of a a country or a kingdom. Citizenship language is used, so the church is described that way. Then we see the church described in a more intimate way as a household or as a a family that gives another level of understanding about what the church is. Then finally, culminating, we have the church described as a building, a building that's strong and secure and durable. In not just any building, we discover this is a temple, and a temple would, would conjure immediately a certain understanding of, of purpose that people would gather when they hear that we are not just a building being built by God, but a holy temple. Uh, it's a beautiful picture of successive metaphors that amplify the picture of the church for us. So let's look at the first metaphor, starting in verse 19, when it begins, So then, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Remember that these are predominantly Gentile converts to Christianity. Um, They would have felt like orphans or strangers or foreigners, not being part of Israel, not being part of the historic people of God. So in that sense alone, they would have had a sense of alienation or disenfranchisement. But on the bigger level, they would have felt like they didn't even belong to the world either. But now they're in Christ. And it says, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. And the so then connects back to what comes in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2. So then, uh, in light of what has been done for you by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as individuals, you have this great salvation, this sovereign grace shown to you in Christ through God, and as a people you've been called together, it's the people of God. So then, in light of that, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. See the language there? You're not strangers and aliens, but you are, in fact, citizens. Strangers and aliens. These are descriptions for people who find themselves in another country, in another place, where they do not have citizenship, they do not have rights, they do not have protections. Strangers, in particular, are people who live in this country, let's say, or any country. Uh, No civil rights, no privileges. They could be called outsiders, they might be migrants, outlanders is another word used to describe a stranger in another country. The word alien, very similar, means sojourner or wanderer. They don't have full access to the legal protections that citizens have. They could be drifters. Aliens can be seen as intruders by some. But now, in Christ, we are no longer strangers or aliens. We're fellow citizens with the historic people of God. We belong to God's people. We may not feel a belonging to the world. And that should be true of us as Christians. You'll notice that. 
but we have a belonging with the people of God, in the kingdom of God. The country, empire, kingdom, these are the words that associate with citizenship. It says in verse 19, you are fellow citizens with the saints. This is the language of citizenship to describe us. And citizenship has attending benefits, rights, and privileges you have as citizens in God's kingdom. No longer disenfranchised. You know, the issue of citizenship would have been very vivid to the members of the Greco-Roman world. I think as Americans, um, we talk about it from time to time when things rise up in the country and we talk about the importance of citizenship, but how many of us really cherish that citizenship? We have some naturalized citizens in our church, and they speak of a real deep gratitude for becoming American citizens. In the Greco-Roman world, it was probably even more vivid because so few people in a vast empire were actually citizens with the rights and privileges of Roman citizenry. Um, the Roman Empire spanned a vast geographic region with different cultures represented. And you could travel through the different sections, but if you weren't a member of the Roman Empire, you could have trouble in one of those places. So it was difficult. Travel was restrictive because you didn't know what your rights were, if you were protected, what your benefits would be. But if you're a Roman citizen, that means you can travel. That means that you could strike business partnerships. You can conduct commerce. Um, local governments would recognize your status there, even though you're far away away from the culture that you came from. You could buy land. You could not be mistreated. If you were mistreated, the consequence for your mistreatment, for the one who mistreated you, would be severe. As a Roman citizen, you had protection. So this language, you are fellow citizens, meant something very, very graphic to those who heard. Do you remember the time in the book of Acts when we were studying Paul and he got arrested by a Roman tribune, a governor, uh, because he was creating a ruckus with the Jews who were trying to oppress him. And the, the Roman governor was getting tired of all the ruckus and was trying to figure out what was actually happening. And he decided, I'll just do like I do because I'm a Roman governor. I'm going to beat this guy until he tells me what's going on. In Acts 22, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks saying that he should be examined by flogging. That's a way to examine somebody. Beat him until he says or does what you want. To find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out, for the whips. I mean, just when they're getting ready to beat on him, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, by the way, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen, uncondemned, in the abrupt change in the behavior of the officials? It shows you what citizenship means in verse 29 of Acts 22. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid. For he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Citizenship, verse 19, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Citizenship is the language of countries, empires, and kingdoms. And as Christians, you are all citizens in God's kingdom. When a foreigner comes into this country and becomes an American citizen, we say they have become a naturalized citizen. When a, Christian becomes a, when a person becomes a Christian, you become a citizen in God's kingdom. You become a supernaturalized citizen, if you will. That's what we have as a benefit of the kingdom of God. And Paul wants the church, the, the small beleaguered church in Ephesus, to know where their greater citizenship is. 
And as that kingdom is expressed and described, that will become more and more strengthening for believers over time. Because God's kingdom is an invisible one, and it transcends all the things that usually limit kingdoms. It transcends physical and visible borders. It has to do with his expanding spiritual reign that will ultimately culminate in eternity. The kingdoms of earth, as we know, they rise and they fall. The countries and the kingdoms of earth will fail eventually. The kingdom of God never fails. It always expands and it lasts forever. Citizenship language is used here for you, brothers and sisters, for us. What kinds of privileges do the citizens of God's kingdom have? Many. But very simply, the favor of God Almighty for eternity. When Paul writes to the Philippians, he reminds them and he reminds us, our citizenship is in heaven. Now that doesn't mean you don't pay attention to what's happening now and you just wait till heaven. No, to say that your citizenship is in heaven is talking about what the culmination of things will be. Ultimately, the heavenly state, the eternal state, that's what we're looking forward to. That's the culmination of it all. So to say we're citizens of the eternal kingdom is to give great strength right now. The everlasting kingdom, that's where your ultimate citizenship lies. Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul said, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, our citizenship gives us a sense of belonging. It's a knowledge of real security when everything else seems so shaky. Changes, variable, all the time. We have confidence in our king who doesn't change. Who are your fellow citizens? It says in verse 19, you are fellow citizens with the saints. And you're thinking to yourself, well, who are they? You're looking around. Okay, where are the saints? Well, saints means the holy ones, the holy ones of God. And here we are not talking about the saints of the Roman Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church, uh, those men and women who were voted on by people. So you don't have to look around very far, and you will see the saints that you are fellow citizens with. Who are the saints of God? When Paul was writing to the Corinthians, he said this and gives us the definition for saints. In 1 Corinthians, he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with who? All those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ have been empowered to do so by God the Spirit. We know this from Ephesians 1 in the first part of Ephesians 2. So you are fellow citizens together with your fellow Christians here gathered. Paul's first metaphor for the church, we are citizens in God's kingdom. His second metaphor, look at the second part of verse 19, we are members of his family now. Family, it's a, it's a more intimate description of the church. Fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Household language is family language. It's intimate language. It, we belong to a family Citizenry is profound, for sure, we've seen that, but it has some distance to it. Family ties are intimate, and they are bonds that are tighter than just citizenship. Household language, it's as close as it gets. Household, it conjures in our mind family relations, maybe biologic relations, but it also means we live together, or we're in a, in, we're in a, 
a domicile almost together. Uh, at least figuratively, we're in a household. We're thought of as together and related closely together. When I think of the Felice household, on my mind, I think of our family, the members of our family, but that we live in a house together and that we're connected that way. And it implies not just biological relations, but also physical proximity and shared proximity. A certain group of related people, that's what a household is. It's not just a country citizenship. It's more than that. It's very intimate. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Members of a household share things together like nobody else does because they live together. Um, We might share a house together, an apartment together, a living place together. We share cars. We share food. We share tasks. We share celebrations together. We share sorrows. We share time together, leisure time together space together. We share friends. We share our lives in a very close way in a household. Closer than we share with people outside of the household, you might say. Verse 19, you are members of the household of God. If I would say something about your family, your household, I would think of not just you, I think the members of your family, maybe where you live, uh, and something about what kind of defines you in my mind. That's your household. We talk in those terms. If I say your family name, I might think of some of the people in your family and and something unique about you and how everyone has some unique feature. Well, the church is the household of God, the family of God. And this is why family language is used so often to describe us. Early in Ephesians 1, adoption language is used, predestined for adoption to himself in Ephesians 1.5. When Paul's describing the church in Romans 8, the same family type language is used. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God or daughters of God. You see, uh, connection with God is a family relationship. And uh, the relationship we have with each other is described as family. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters in Romans 8. The Spirit of God himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. So it's a supernatural attestation by the Spirit of God that we are related Um, There are times when you don't feel you're related to your natural family because there's such a disconnect somehow. But the family of God, because of Christ, has this supernatural bond that testifies to us that we're brothers and sisters. You are members of the household of God. Paul first compares the church with citizenship in a kingdom. He next compares the church with membership in a family or a household. Finally, verse 20 to verse 22, this, and, and climactically we might say, Paul now compares the church to a building project of God. But not just any building project, it has purpose attached to it because of what kind of building it is. He starts, though, with just a basic building metaphor, and it grows into a temple metaphor. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. He's constructing something, the church. And the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The strength and the longevity of buildings depends on their base. What are they built upon? Their foundation. There were foundation stones that would be lined up the best and strongest and well-cut stones on the base so that everything that was built upon it would last, would be strong, would hold sturdy. So that foundation, that base was of utmost importance. And the church is described as a building with a strong foundation made up of the apostles and the prophets 
and Christ is the chief cornerstone. Cornerstones, don't think of them as small little uh, ornamental stones or ceremonial stones that are put in modern buildings to kind of uh, m- memorialize the building and they place the cornerstone. Those are just kind of for show. In antiquity, uh, the most important stone was the cornerstone. It was cut perfectly and everything was set according to it. Um, it, was, it was the plumb line. It was the thing that set everything else straight. Everything had to be tied into the cornerstone for the rest of the thing to grow well. And cornerstones, they, found, they have found cornerstones uh, that have been dug up or shown in the base of old buildings that are as big as a boxcar in a train. So we're talking 40 foot long and 15 to 20 feet wide. They're not small, they're huge. And they set the pace for the rest of the building and it's, and it's strengthening. And so we are told here in this passage, we are built, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. The foundation is the apostles and the prophets. What does this mean? No question that the prophets of the Old Testament uh, who give us by the Holy Spirit all the revelation we need to know who the Messiah is, to identify the Messiah. Indeed, 66% of the Bible is the Old Testament. So there is a sense in which uh, the church is built on that foundation. But what it means literally here, I believe is fair to say, is talking about the New Testament era of the apostles' ministry. In the way the Spirit worked in a unique way through the apostles and the prophets of the New Testament era to confirm that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament in that revelation that we find in the New Testament, which ties in the Old Testament, that forms the foundation, which is the revelation of Christ, who is the foundation of the church. The apostles and the prophets' teaching concerning Christ and his fulfillment. That's what's being spoken of. I think this is demonstrable because later in Ephesians, the word apostle and prophets is used again. Listen to how it's used there in Ephesians 3. When you read this, Paul says, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The apostolic era the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being revealed as the cornerstone. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. You know, for centuries, the Messiah was forecasted as such a piece, the cornerstone. Uh, David, the king, a thousand years before the time of Jesus, wrote in Psalm 118, by direction of the Holy Spirit, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. Then, 300 years later, in the time of Israel, under the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus comes, the prophet forecasts, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. So our passage in front of us, in verse 20, the second part, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So we are being shown as a building, being built upon the foundation of the apostle, the prophets, with Jesus as the cornerstone. Paul is picturing us as a building, but it's no ordinary building. Look at verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple 
in the Lord. We know what kind of building it is. Sometimes in this strip mall down the way, I'm curious, they start building something else, and we all try to figure out as a family, what are they going to build? I think it's going to be this. I think it's going to be that. And then eventually a sign will go up with a picture of what it'll be, and ah, that's what it'll be. So Paul's starting with a picture of a building, but now, ah, that's what the church will be, a holy temple unto the Lord. Now, I think this would come to your mind, but it definitely would come to the first century listener's mind. At least two temples, one in Ephesus and one in Jerusalem. People would know of the temples that, that were pronounced in those days. But especially living in Ephesus, of all places, if the word temple is used, you would perk up immediately because there's a great sensitivity, especially from Christians who had to live under the shadow of the temple of Artemis, the temple of Diana, in other words. They had to live under the shadow. There's nothing you could do as an Ephesian that wouldn't be outside of the gaze of the temple given to Diana's credit and honor and to her presence. And it says in the passage that the church, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The temple of Artemis was built 700 years before the time of Paul. It had just been rebuilt afresh in those days. We know of the prominence of this temple in Ephesus because in the book of Acts, when Paul goes to Ephesus and is preaching the gospel and people start responding and become Christians, they trust in Christ, some of the leaders of the city are worried that there's going to be a, a huge riot because people are coming to Christ. And it's such an opposition to Diana, to Artemis, the goddess, and the presence of Artemis in the temple. Don't get her mad, they're thinking. And so one of the officials speaks up and we get a glimpse of how important the temple was in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, Paul, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice. They're trying to overpower Paul's preaching. What did they say? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Over and over again so people couldn't hear Paul preach. Shows you how powerful that temple was. It says further in Acts 19, And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? In other words, don't worry about this guy Paul talking. Don't don't get into an uprising. Everyone knows Diana is the god, Artemis is the god of this place. Just look at the temple. The temple declares that she is present and she rules no matter what you say. That's what comes to mind when temple is brought up to an Ephesian. But not just that temple. They would have known of another temple as well. The one that Jesus himself fulfilled. The Jewish temple. Built under Solomon a thousand years before the time of Paul. And it was glorious in its original construction. Torn down under the Babylonians and rebuilt in the time of the Persians under Zerubbabel. Damaged during the Maccabeans but rebuilt under Herod. People knew the Jewish temple. It was a place of God's presence, built in a high spot in Jerusalem. People knew it symbolized God with his people, dwelling with his people. The temple is where God dwelt, and it dwelt among his people. What a picture of a temple. The temple where the priests ministered the sacrifices. But now the sacrifices were fulfilled in Christ. That temple was effectively empty any longer. In fact, there are two temples known to the Ephesians, one pagan and one Jewish. Each was designed by its devotees devotees, as a divine residence, but both were now empty of the living God. So now, it says of you, of us, 
and not about this building, about us. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We're growing into, it says in verse 21, a holy temple in the Lord. So the church is God's temple. And that's a picture of our purpose. Please do not miss this. It's a picture of our purpose. God calling us his holy temple means we are the dwelling place for God. That we are the place that the world should be able to look and find God, learn who Christ is, know who the Messiah is, worship God, see his glory. The church is his holy temple. We are the fulfillment of that purpose that God has. The church is the new temple. The dwelling place for God in the Spirit. John Stott captures wonderfully the essence of this passage and this meaning that we are God's holy temple. Stott wrote, The new temple is neither a material building nor a national shrine, nor has it a localized site. It is a spiritual building, God's household, and an international community embracing Gentiles as well as Jews. And it has a worldwide spread wherever God's people are to be found. This is where God dwells. He is not tied to holy buildings, but to holy people, to his own new society. To them he has pledged himself by a solemn covenant. He lives in them individually and as a community. So even though it may be a downtime for the church in a given place, do not lose sight of your purpose, of our purpose. We are to be the presence of God in this place. And when the, the place that we're in says they don't want us anymore, they don't know it, but they need us. And we need to be for the world the place where God dwells so that people can know the gospel in those difficult times, which we're always facing at some level. The church cannot get weak in a moment like this. It must get stronger and clearer about its identity. It shouldn't morph its identity. It should be recalled to its identity. We are the temple of God where God is glorified, where Christ is proclaimed, where people can come to know the God that they're estranged from. And if we are not this, where will they learn this? The Belgic Confession does a great job capturing this truth, this timeless truth. And so this holy church is not confined, bound, or limited to a certain place or certain people, but it is spread and dispersed throughout the entire world, though still joined and united in heart and will in one and the same spirit by the power of faith. So this is what's going to happen. God's going to keep building his church, but the scaffolding is up. It could be a little bit dark and people don't get what it is completely, but it's there and it's strong. It's being built. The curtain's up, the scaffolding's up, and it's going up. It's going up higher. He's building pieces and the stones he's using, the living stones of each one of you as he brings people to himself, brings them into his church, and he grows it. And it's a little bit obscured, but there will be a moment. There'll be a moment in this great climactic point when it, the curtain comes down and the scaffolding folds away and the whole world will see the glory of God manifested through his church, his new temple. That day is going to come, and we have to recognize it as we work towards faithfulness to God and see it built and see that God will do this work and it will happen eventually. In fact, the book of Revelation gives us this picture that we're longing for. Listen to the wording of the picture of the Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, and listen to what the voice says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, 
and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Paul writes to the Ephesians to give a view of Christ's church that's God's view. Because Paul knows that when the people of God grasp what the church really is, then our security will grow, our unity will become tighter, and our witness will become much greater. This is the purpose of God unto the end of the age. Greg Beale writes something technical, but listen closely because it's helpful. He's picturing Paul's view of things, saying, Paul indeed believes not merely that the church is like the temple, but that it is the actual beginning fulfillment of the latter-day temple prophecies from the Old Testament. Beale goes on, As a result of Christ's resurrection, the Spirit continued building the end-time temple. That's what's happening. The building materials of which are God's people, thus extending the temple into the new creation in the new age. This building process, Beale concludes, will culminate in the eternal new heavens and earth as a paradisal city temple. It is true that as you and we have a proper view of the church, what God's doing in our midst, this will help us in times of insecurity, times when we are splintered, times when we wonder what impact we're having. We'll wonder no more eventually. But knowing this now helps us. Eventually, the scaffolding will be torn down and the beautifully restored edifice will be on full display for all the universe to see. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for the vision of the church that we receive in the book of Ephesians. And we know when this was written, there was every reason for people to doubt the strength of the church or the longevity of the church. We are certainly not in unique times. Nobody could say that. But we also acknowledge Jesus is the king and he will always have his subjects. And we want to be his subjects You have subdued us to yourself, and we are grateful for this. Lord, we long, though, for everyone uh, to look upon your church and see Jesus, to see Christ and worship him. We pray, according to your will, that this would be so, that you would use our church, this church, this local body called Redeemer, to be that kind of light to the world, and that you would give us the strength we need for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us respond together by singing this song that's like a prayer.